Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. I want us to take a look at a passage today in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to talk about being a man of God, not just limiting it to fathers. Um, I want us to talk about being a man of God. This was a passage that some of you men will remember. We looked at together in our study, uh, The Disciplines of a Godly Man. It is, of course, the story of David and Goliath. And I won't read it all. It's quite a few verses it reminds me a little bit of the book of Jonah because we always think of that's a book about the big fish. There's actually three verses in there about a fish, and uh, all the rest of it is about God. Uh, this is a chapter that 20% of it's about David and Goliath, and 80% of it is about all the things that were going on around uh, them at the time. So we will read through verse 11, and then I will read verse 40. Nine. We will look at some of the other verses together. But let's begin our reading. Now we're going to open up with now the Philistines. The Philistines were a warrior-like people. If you can imagine a map of the Mediterranean Sea, go up to halfway between sort of Asia Minor and Greece. I know you're thinking of it right now. There's an island there called Crete. It wasn't always called that. It had a different name in ancient times, but it's called Crete. And we think that's where the original Philistines came from. They were warrior-like people, and a lot of them were huge. As a matter of fact, they were also pretty sharp. They were able to uh, make weapons of iron, and that gave them a tremendous advantage. Israel was fairly advanced, but their weapons were bronze. But the Philistines had weapons of iron. They were a warrior-like people. And then if you can look at Palestine and think of a map of it, uh, and, and we're working on being able to just show you some maps, so I don't have to make you imagine what it's like. I'm a little short on fingers when it comes to doing that. But if you think about Jerusalem and the map and just go left toward the Mediterranean Sea, they had four cities there. One was Gath and they had some others. But they settled in that land and they were a pain in the side for God's people forever. Matter of fact, we read about them early on. Abraham uh, had a run-in with them. And they, they've been there a while. And uh, they had planned to stay. Uh, so let's read together here. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah and Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and they camped on the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. We're about to have a war on our hands. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. 
And then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. His head would barely fit under the rim of a basketball goal. That's how tall he was. And he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed five thousand shekels of bronze. That's about 125 pounds. He also had bronze greaves. Those were shin guards on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out? Why do you draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And David put his hand into his bag, verse 49. We've skipped ahead here. And took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. There are lots of kinds of men we focus just on men today for a little bit. There's sometimes we call men men of renown. Those are men who've made themselves popular, famous in some way. They're men that we consider to be fearless men. Those can be somewhat reckless uh, because they can get themselves killed and others killed. Uh, but they're fearless. They, they, they don't really need a lot of courage. They're afraid of very... Little. And then there are men of courage, men that do the right thing, the tough thing, the difficult thing, even though they may be very afraid. There's a lot of different kinds we could go on. As a matter of fact, I'm told that at one time the most popular song for a funeral for a man in America at one time was the song, I Did It My Way. Not sure how well that goes after you take your last breath. But we have all kinds of men, but I want to talk about men who would be considered men of God. I don't just mean people who go to church. I'm talking about men that their life is centered in God. Their decisions that they make, they don't always make the right ones, by the way. But they try to make them in accordance to the will of God. They have ideas, but they know their ideas have to always be subordinate 
to whatever it is that God says. And that, that's the kind of life they live. And they may be big, bruisers, muscular, manly men, alpha males. They may be maybe smaller fellows that are rather quiet and uh, seem somewhat sheepish. But some of you may have had fathers like that, that you still knew he is and was a man of God. He kept his heart turned toward God. He raised his children the way God said to raise them. He wasn't picking a fight. He wasn't trying to be better than everybody else. He wasn't condemning maybe of others all the time. He just quietly followed God like a steer in the blizzard. He just was a rock. And you knew that he would keep his focus on God. You knew he made mistakes. You knew he messed up things. But... but, but Still, even in all of that, he would be honest about it, and he, again, would turn his face back to God, constantly following him. He protected you as a father, not just from maybe somebody coming through a window in the middle of the night. That rarely happens. But maybe there were other things that tried to creep into the home, and you can testify, I know, he put a stop to that, didn't stand for that, didn't want to fight about it, just wasn't going to be. Not because it was his opinion or his idea, but it was because he was a man that was centered in what God had to say. That is a man of God. We're about to learn firsthand just exactly what a man of God has to do. We're going to learn it from a young boy that is probably somewhere in his late teens, we can only imagine. If he were the age of 20, he would already be in this battle according to Numbers chapter 3, I believe it is. He would already be fighting the battle. But he is back home tending sheep and David comes as a young teenage boy and he's bringing food for his brothers who are fighting this battle. And he realizes, boy, there's something really weird going on here. I hear a lot of shouting, but I, 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 I don't see any fighting. I, I, I don't know what all of this is about. And he begins to ask some questions, and the next thing you know, he is right smack dab uh, in the middle of it. There's this valley. It's called the Valley of Eli. It's a wadi, W-A-D-I. That means a dry riverbed, no water in the wadi. And that'll help you remember that maybe. And there's this valley, and they're on both sides of it. And the Israelites are coming out twice a day. And this, this guy named Goliath is coming out in the morning and in the evening. And he is shouting at them, and they're shouting back at him. And then they return to their tents, horse of throat. But they have drawn no blood, and they have conquered absolutely nothing. As we go through this, I hope you ask yourself, man, what is my valley of Elah? What is the place that I just am afraid to cross? I know I should. Maybe it's an apology you need to give. You just can't bring yourself to it. Maybe it's a conviction you need to stand on. Maybe there's something wrong that, that you know that, that you need to face. Most of the time, these things are in our own homes. And we talked about that, men in class that night. But a lot of times, it's areas that are very close to us that we know we ought to address. We just do not do it. We have fear and, uh, in our hearts, and we worry about the, the consequences of 
all of that. Well, I hope you may ask yourself, what is my valley of Elah? Let's look at what men of God are about. Number one, and there's several of these, so we'll not we'll try not to spend a lot of time on any one of them, but number one, and they're all in this passage, every one of them. As we expound this chapter in verse one, we find that you fight battles that no one wants to fight. That's number one. Men of God often fight battles that nobody else wants to fight. In verse 1, they were gathered at Soko, but that belonged to Judah, it says. What, what are the Philistines doing there? And Goliath steps forward, and he repeats this challenge. And it says he did it for 40 days. So this particular day, if our math is on par, is the 81st time that this giant has stepped out in this valley and invited somebody, just one guy, to have enough courage to step out there and to fight with him. They've had a 40-day standoff, and nobody has stepped out to fight. I, I, I can tell you, man, it is, and Goliath makes fun of them. Now, you, you can see, he says in verse 8, if you weren't going to fight, then why did you line up for battle? You, you've lined up for battle. You act like you want to fight, but, but you're not getting it done. You're not addressing the issue here. You're, you're keeping a safe distance from actually being effective in solving the issue. You know, one of the sad things about being a man of God and of being a leader as a man of God. I think back to these Philistines back in the book of Judges when a man named Samson uh, was fighting the Philistines. And yeah, Samson, boy, he had more problems than you can shake a jawbone of a donkey at. Uh, but I can tell you this, boy, he lived in a difficult time. As a matter of fact, God's people kept telling him, we want you to leave the Philistines alone. They would tell Samson, they would say, do you not know that they are our lords and our masters and they rule over us? But that's not what God wanted. They're living in the promised land and that's not how God had designed things to be. But they kept telling Samson, why don't you settle down? You keep causing all these battles. And, and finally one time, boy, the saddest thing maybe that in the whole story is where the people people of Israel actually tie Samson with the ropes and tell him, okay, now we're going to turn you over ourselves to the Philistines because you're fighting a battle none of us want to fight. And of course, the ropes didn't work. I want to tell you, boy, nothing to rip your heart out like realizing as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a man of God, that you're fighting a, uh, fighting a battle and standing up for truth that most people just wish you would leave alone. Just leave it alone. You'll fight battles no one wants to fight. Secondly, you'll face enemies that no one wants to face. This champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath. He's about 10 feet tall. We don't think he's the tallest man in the Bible. According to the Old Testament, Og, uh, the king of Bashan, had an iron bed. 
that was 13 feet long and 6 foot wide. Uh, imagine that, a bed 13 feet long and 6 foot wide made out of iron. This was the first memory foam bed because they said you never forgot a night's sleep on 78 square feet of iron. I don't know that he did, but if he filled up that bed, then he'd be the tallest man we read about in all of Scripture. But Goliath could certainly hold his own. He was a champion. A champion was one who stepped out just like Goliath did and said, okay. And this was something that they did quite often in that day when they would fight. They would say, you bring your guy, we'll bring our guy. If our guy wins, then we win the battle. If your guy wins, then you win the battle. That's what they called a champion in that day. Nowadays, we kind of use that word loosely. It often refers to overpaid athletes who can't shut up whining. But in that day, a champion was someone who truly knew how to stand and he knew how to fight. His chest armor weighed about 125, 126 pounds. The tip of his spear, this thing is razor sharp, but just the tip of this razor sharp spear weighed 15 pounds. He could throw it all the way through you and two or three more. Man, it was amazing. It says in verse 11, Saul and all his men were fearful and dismayed. He scared them to death. Well, sometimes you fight battles no one wants to fight. Sometimes you have to face enemies that no one wants to face. It's just tough. Issues that nobody else wants to deal with. Most of the time, people keep themselves in a position of convenience where they don't have to deal with certain things. I can tell you, as a leader, it's hard sometimes, honestly, not to get a little bitter about the criticism that you hear, and I don't hear very much of that here. I'm so blessed to be at this church, but boy, I can tell you, pastors, generally speaking, catch a lot of criticism, but it's because they're fighting enemies no one wants to fight, and they're addressing problems that no one wants to address, and it can be difficult. Thirdly, you'll hear criticism like no one wants to hear. It says in verse 28, we didn't read it, but he has a brother named Eliab, and Eliab, his oldest brother, heard that David was talking to the men about somebody who ought to go down there and fight this big old tall sack of iron. And so anyway, Eliab gets mad about it because he's too scared to go down there. He's not going to go down there and fight. And here's his little brother who came to bring them some cheese from home so that they could uh, eat and have something for food. And he looks at him in verse 28 and he says, I know your insolence, David. I know your heart and the wickedness of your heart. You're insubordinate. You're, you just, you're, you're out of place doing this, and you're wicked in your heart. For you have come down in order to see the battle. And David said in verse 29, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? That's the Old Testament version. I was just asking. Seems odd. This is actually what we call, or what Scripture calls, judging. Today we so misunderstand what it means to judge. Most people nowadays think to not judge means to remain neutral about what is right and what is wrong. That's, that's not what 
not judging means. But when you look at someone and you claim to know that their heart is motivated by insolence or you know that their heart is motivated by wickedness, when you claim to know what's going on inside of them, then you have passed judgment. And man, the most severe criticism that will come your way as a man of God will come from people that ought to be standing beside you, not behind you, gouging you in the back. But it's his own brother. Usually you'll get criticism from people that want you to lead it, preach it, plan it, address it, all of those things like they would if they weren't too fearful, lazy, or backslid to do it themselves. You get a lot of criticism from them. They don't want to do it. And they're afraid you doing it is going to make them look bad. Just a couple of quick things about this. The source of it was his brother Elab. That's his own brother. Man, alive. People that should be standing with him are standing behind him, criticizing him. The sting of it, there's nothing in the world more frustrating than for somebody to presume that they know what your motives are. Oh, I know why you say those things. Or I know why you preach that way. Or I know why you stand against that. Or, or I know this or that about you. I can tell you those kind of things hurt worse than anything in the world because it is not like David got up that morning and said, man, I'd love to fight me somebody today that's about 10 foot tall. Wonder where I could find someone like that. It's not something that he wanted to do, but it was something that he felt like that God was wanting him to do. And the day would come in his life when he would actually put to paper, he would write the words that blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked nor stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scoffers. That's Psalm one, he would write those words one day that the scoffers are not standing or walking, they're sitting. And they usually are. They're doing nothing. But they're criticizing you for doing something. He would write those words one day, but on this day, he is living them. And then the skepticism, and then we'll move on, but Verse 33, Saul tells David, you're not able to go against him. You're just a kid. And he's been a warrior ever since he's been a kid. You, 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 you can't do it. But this is something that Saul did not understand. And David would remind him of this later. This battle's not between me and him. This battle's between him and God. He has defied the armies of the Lord of hosts. And I'm not going down there because I think I can defeat him. God can defeat him. And God has already promised us. He used the very same words, guys. Let, let, let me preach a little bit for David here. He could look at them and say, he used the same words. Do not be fearful or dismayed. And there is a list of places in the Old Testament where God said that very thing. Do not be fearful and do not be dismayed. The two things God told you not to do, and you're both of them right now. He said, it ain't about me. It's about God. That's who he's defied. You'll fight battles no one wants to fight, face enemies no one wants to face, hear criticism no one wants to hear. You have to make decisions, number four, sometimes that no one wants to make. 
Make decisions no one wants to make. Saul says, okay, well, if you're going, let's get you suited up. So he starts putting all this armor on him. Now, we know Saul was a head taller than most men, so he's a pretty big guy. David's not a very big guy. So they start putting all of this armor on him, and he's walking around like a bunch of tin cans clanking, and he can't even hardly walk, and he finally says, get this stuff off of me. I have not tested this. I have not proven this armor whatsoever, and I'm sure that... Old Saul was like, maybe we look at the younger generation sometime and go, well, what do you mean you don't like uh, that old armor there? Boy, let me tell you, amen, bless God. Uh, sure, they said that back then. Uh, this old armor, see that scratch right there? Amalekite give me that one time, but he thought he had me. But man, I, I got him. Boy, I'll tell you something. There's nothing like this good old bronze armor, buddy. I, how dare you to, to, to decide that it's uh, not worthy of you wearing today well that's just a decision nobody wants to make but David had to look at Saul say put her back in the closet it's not something I need again he lets them know this battle is the Lord's and he gives them his resume and I love this part do you know the first and, and this is just this this is just stuff you learn when you come to Cornerstone okay the first NFL all-star was David because he tells them, I beat the Lions, I beat the Bears, I play for the Saints, and I'm about to beat the Giants. Man, you can't beat that. <laughs> and I did it all without that fancy helmet of yours, Saul. I had a lion came one time, took one of my sheep. He said, I ran him down. I didn't go, oh my goodness, thank Lord he didn't see me over here. No, he said, that was my sheep. You don't take my sheep. He said, I ran him down and I grabbed him by his mane. I rescued the sheep and I killed the lion. He said, I had the same thing happen to me with a bear. He said, I took care of that then. God was with me then. He'll be with me now. Number five, you will need courage like most have never owned, have never known. It says in verse 45, Then David said to the Philistine, This is important. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I know what I'm getting into. I'm not loafing off down here like this is no big deal. I see the sword you got. I see the javelin. You come to me with a spear that weighs more than I do. He said, I got all that. I'm not a fool. Any more than when I went after that line. I understand exactly what I was getting to. But he said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Yahweh Shabbat. The Lord of hosts. He said, that's how I come to you as I represent God, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. As a matter of fact, to taunt the armies of Israel, the penalty for that, if you disparage the armies of Israel, the penalty for that was you were to be stoned. And I would say when this chapter ends, David has kept it consistent. It just took one. The battle was over. I know what I'm getting into. You fight battles as a man of God. Sometimes nobody wants to fight. 
You face enemies sometimes no one wants to face. You hear criticism sometimes that nobody wants to hear. Men, you make decisions sometimes that nobody wants to make. You don't even want to make them. But you have to. You need courage like most have never known. Number six, though, you will glorify God like no one could imagine. You will glorify God like no one could imagine. Verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. Man, He's glorifying God in what He's doing. You know, I think one of the big questions that maybe the world is asking us, not, not verbatim, I, I don't, I've not seen it in the paper or on Fox News, but I think one of the questions that the world may be asking us now as Christians is, where is your God? You talk about your God and you pray to your God and you depend on your God and all of that, but, but, but where is your God right now? You, you, you claim you depend on Him and and, and it seems like you depend on the same things we depend on. You, you get fired up about the same issues. And boy, sometimes I'm just as guilty as anybody else with this because I'm thinking, boy, mine alive, I've never seen such stupid politicians in my life. But here's the thing I've learned uh, about calling politicians stupid. They've always been stupid. Not all of them. But... 98% makes the other 2% look bad. I understand that. It's just sad. But when you and I get all wound around the axle about, boy, we've got to get a new president or this country's going down the drain, this country may go down the drain. I, I can tell you, I, I don't doubt that one bit in the world. We preached about it last week that all of these great empires fall, and I believe this empire that we are part of right now, I believe it too will fall. But I want to tell you something. There's a lot of difference in this country and God's church. And God's church, he says, the gates of hell itself will not prevail against my church. My church will survive. And I know we've had a weeding out in God's church. We've had folks that we thought would be here forever, and now they're gone. And I understand some of that. There's been a sifting, and, and, and I think that might wind up being a good thing. But I would just hold on, because I'm going to tell you, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. But as long as you and I do not put our faith and trust in people and politicians and men and women of power, but put our faith and our trust in God... I want to tell you, his church is going to stand forever. It will stand <laughs> forever. See, God killed Goliath, not David. No, he used David. He, he likes doing things like that. <coughs> I, I love these things. I know, I repeat them sometimes. Fortunately, a lot of you are getting as old as I am, so you probably don't remember it either. But I, I love it when God's staring at 5,000 men, not counting women and children, and says, the disciples are going, how in the world are we going to feed this crowd? And they got last year's budget out, and they've looked at giving for the last four weeks or whatever, and they're trying to figure all of this out, and they know they don't have the resources. And one of the disciples is over there giggling, and I'm paraphrasing here, 
But uh, uh, Jesus is like, what's he giggling about? Well, there's a kid brought his lunch. He got five little pieces of bread and two fish. <laughs> he thought he could feed everybody with that. Jesus said, bring him here. I like little boys that think if they give me all five loaves and both fish, that I can do something incredible. Incredible. And boy, that's exactly what he did. I love it when Peter steps out of the boat to walk on the water with Jesus in the middle of the storm. He's been with the other disciples in this storm, and they've all been trying to, their best to stay in the boat. Now Peter's climbing over the side of it. What's that good is that going to do? Who's going to get saved because Peter climbs out of the boat? There is no multitude around there. They're in the middle of the sea in the middle of the night. But God says, hey, Peter, if you really want to come out here and walk on the water with me, if you believe I can make you do that, step on out of the boat. Turn loose of the one thing that you've known all your life and where you have found your safety and stability as long as you've been a, re a fisherman on this very same lake. Step away from it and turn loose of it and face me and watch what I can do with you. Man. You see, we glorify God when we do things like that. Number seven, you will experience victory like no one has ever seen. It says, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. And then, of course, he went over and thought there's no need for this sword to go to waste. Might as well cut his head off with it. Man. What is... What is your giant? What is the thing that, it's not just in your life, it taunts you. Forty days. This is over a month. In the morning and every evening, this big giant steps out and he taunts the people of God. What, what, what's, what's your giant? What is it when you think maybe you're about to get somewhere, it, it just flies up in your face? It might be guilt or shame or some sin that's not forgiven or some sin you haven't forgiven in someone else. I, I, I don't know what it might be. It could be so many different things. But I think a lot of us have that thing that you know it and I know it too. It, we, we can make excuses about it and we can try our best to justify it or whatever it is in our life, but we know it doesn't belong there. We know every time we think about really getting involved and maybe teaching that class at church or, 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 or maybe stepping up to that next level that, that the uh, pastoral staff has invited us to, to be a part of or to, or to take a job that is going to stretch us a little bit, whatever it might be, oh, your Goliath steps out and reminds you you are nothing but a loser and a waste of time. You don't have the skills. You don't have the ability. You don't have the education. You don't have this. You don't have that. You need to leave it alone. That's your Goliath. Might be a sin. Something in your life that you know is no way I can move forward until I deal with this. 
but I don't seem to be able to deal with it too well. I scream in its face and I hate it. But hating it's not gotten rid of it. God, I need you to help me today. I need to bring down a Goliath. Think about this. I know this is a firm grip on the obvious, but Goliath wasn't always a giant. At one time, there was a mother somewhere that cuddled that little fella in her arms. He was an infant. The only way he got to be a giant was he was allowed to live long enough and grow big enough that he became 10 foot tall. That's what happens to giants. The longer you leave them around and tolerate them, the bigger they get. The stronger they become, the more power over you they have, the more fear they induce. Goliath, what is yours? And then last of all, you fight battles as men of God. No one wants to fight, face enemies. No one wants to face, hear criticism. No one wants to hear Make decisions as men of God that no one wants to make. You're going to need courage that most have never known. You'll glorify God like no one could ever imagine. You'll experience victory like no one has ever seen. Last of all, you will inspire others like maybe no one has before. Inspire others. If you go to verse 51 through 53, it says that the Philistines, when they saw their champion was dead, they fled. They ran. And Israel pursued them. And they wiped them out. They defeated them, chasing them. And then they went back and plundered their camp. What David did that day, what God did that day through a teenage boy, it stunned both sides of this battle. Both sides were shocked. One was shocked into fighting, the other was shocked into failure. But God did something awesome. As I close today, let me tell you this. When we preach about passages like David and Goliath, what else are you going to say about it? And if you're as old as me, first time you saw this story in living color was on a flannel graph. You remember the sacred flannel graph? Some of you are old enough to, oh yeah. I, li I like it when people talk about, yeah, when I was little, I was so old, we just had three channels on TV. I said, you got a TV? Man. But let me tell you something about this story that you might not have known. This battle was, should have never happened. We're in 1 Samuel now, and we're in chapter 17, but if you go back a few chapters... Jonathan, the son of Saul, had attacked the Philistines. And he was beating them to death. This battle would have never happened. We'd have never heard of Goliath. But then Jonathan's father, who was King Saul, who was one of the most ignorant human beings you could have ever imagined, really, he honestly didn't know how to make a right decision. He could mess up 
anything. And he did stupid things. He made decisions that had no meaning to them whatsoever. Jonathan is defeating the Philistines. Saul comes and gets involved. And then he makes this decree. He said, nobody will eat a bite today until this battle is over with. Because we're winning, we're going to whip them and all of that. Jonathan didn't hear that. He was off fighting while his father was off politicizing. So Jonathan took his stick and digs down in some honey he found and put it to his mouth. And he ate it. He was so weak they hadn't eaten all day. The soldiers were faltering. The Philistines were beginning to get the upper hand. They needed food so badly. And food was available for them. But Saul has made this asinine decision that nobody is to eat until this battle is over. Jonathan didn't even hear the command. And after he had eaten it, somebody told him, says, hey, you know what your daddy said? Your daddy said nobody's to eat until the battle's over. And Jonathan said, my father, he has hurt Israel today. That's an Old Testament way of saying he's done it again. Finally, Saul stands up and says, if anybody, by the way, ate today before I gave the command that they could, they're going to have to die. And there he was about to have to kill his own son. And if you read the passage, it looked like the fool was willing to do it. And God's own people rescued Jonathan from his crazy daddy. Now in the middle of all this turmoil, the Philistines win the battle, or at least escape with their lives. And that brings us to chapter 17, where all of this had to happen. That's the part that didn't get on the flannel graph. Saul, a man that's supposed to be a man of God, wasn't. And David, who was supposed to be a kid watching sheep, was. A man of God. We need some men of God. Maybe today you know, right now, oh, it came to mind so quickly, just as soon as we covered it in today's message, it hits you like Goliath's spear right in the chest. Something in your home's not right and you're not addressing it? What's up with that, man? Do you know most of the time when a family is having trouble, do you know who is usually more often than not, I'm going to say... Way more than 50% of the time. The one who comes to me as a pastor and counselor and asks me to get involved. It is not the man. It's the wife. Oh, us men sometimes like to keep a safe distance. We don't like to fight certain battles. We act big and brony, but there are things that go on sometimes. Man, I'm, I'm like, sometimes I've had trouble as a pastor with women uh, from time to time that may, may have gotten out of hand or whatever. Maybe they were gossiping or whatever. You had to break up a fight between two of them or something. I don't mean physically. I, I'm not that brave. But I can't help but wonder, why hadn't your husband talked to you about this? 
He knows you gossip all the time too. Why hasn't he answered, said something to you? Why has he not talked to you about your destructive personality and what you're doing? I'll tell you why he hadn't. Because he's afraid. He's afraid. <laughs> when you're not around, he may shout about it. <laughs> I'm just telling you, men, and there's so many other things, we've got to stand up. We've got to stand up. I, 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 I'm going to tell you this. wasn't planning on it, but I've been studying Jeremiah 20. It's one of the most honest passages between a prophet and God that you're ever going to read. Jeremiah 20. Jeremiah looks at God and says, God, you tricked me. You tricked me. You're more powerful than I am. And you pull one over on me. This is Jeremiah talking to God. He said, I preach these things that are supposed to come to pass. And because they haven't yet. Because your wrath has been delayed. Because Nebuchadnezzar and his armies have not infiltrated Jerusalem maybe yet. I preach these things because you told me to. And he says, the people go around and say, when I show up, they say, well, here comes uh, terror and violence. That's what they said because he preached and he says they are all the time talking about everything. The only thing he preaches about is terror and violence. He says they've nicknamed me God. They say here comes old loudmouth again blaring out about terror and violence. Why would you do that to me God? You make me look like a fool. These people don't want to hear a word from you God. I feel like a fool. And he's somewhat schizophrenic because he goes, uh, it's not a professional diagnosis, but he, he goes back to praising God and thanking God, but then he falters right back again in another verse, and he's crying out to God in such dismay. I'm telling you, sometimes it feels like that trying to be a man of God. Does it not, men? I can tell you it does as a pastor. It does as a pastor. Sometimes it's like, oh, well, here comes, what's his name again? You know, he's all stirred up. I don't want to be stirred up. I don't want to mind anybody's business. I just want to live my life and fish. I don't care if they bite. I'll aggravate them. But I don't get to do that. God called me. Preach his word. I fail at it miserably sometimes. But we need more men of God. More men of God. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask you, Lord, help us today. I pray, Lord, that you would begin... By forgiving me where I have notoriously failed you, God. Lord, there have been times I have been afraid. And there were times, God, you know that I had courage and I made decisions even though I was afraid. But Lord, you also know there are times 
that I avoided controversy, that I pulled away from what was my responsibility, that I allowed things to happen that I should have addressed. I pray, God, you'll help me. Forgive me, first of all, and help me to be the man of God that you've called me to be. And I pray for these other men in here that they know you as their Savior, Lord, and, and they trust in you. But maybe they have a big old 10-foot-tall problem standing right in front of them, God. It might be fear. It might, it might be some uh, sin in their life, God, that they've struggled with and fought with and they're ashamed of and they hate it. But it taunts them every day of their life, God. I pray you'd set them free, God. I pray, Father, today that you, not us, we can't, God. But I pray, Lord, that you would bring down the giants in our life. The giants that have separated families and caused controversy, God, and has led people astray and has led all of us to be suspicious or, 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 or Lord, to, to, to think of others in ways that we shouldn't. Lord, those are fears and and, and ideas that come to our mind, I pray, God, that you would help us to take those thoughts captive, God, as you tell us in your word. Whatever the Goliath is, help us, Lord, to bring down the giants and to do it in your name. And you be glorified in that, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at ServantsWay.com or email us at office at ServantsWay.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.